6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 12 through 30. That ye may be blameless and harmless to the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye are, you shine as lights of the world. So we are to be in complete submission to God in several ways, doing all the things without complaining or arguing. Our life is to be blameless before other people. Our life is to be blameless before God also. So we're going to be like Daniel. Let's take some examples here. He lived in the midst of the fountainhead of ungodliness, namely Babylon, in the court. And he didn't hide in a corner. He lived in the king's palace and became his key advisor. His enemies tried to find fault with him, but the only thing they'd accuse him of was his worship of Yodhivave, or Yahweh, or however you want to pronounce it. Daniel 6.5. Then said these, these men, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Wow, what a credential. We are to live blameless before God. The word here is the same as in Ephesians, in Ephesians 1.4, according as, as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and what? Without blame before him in love. This doesn't mean that we get to the point that we, we will be without sin. Real sanctification lies in the increasing realization of how sinful we are. We need to be open with him. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What a petition. And this process is not a one-shot thing. This continues throughout your entire life. That sound impossible? Not with God. He's the God of the impossible. We ourselves are incapable of living out the kind of life that God requires of us. But God is capable of living out that life in anyone who yields to his spirit. He does for us and in us what we cannot do ourselves. And the Bible tells us how this will happen. In Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul now is going to include three practical examples of what he's talking about. And the first one is himself. Sounds strange, doesn't it? He goes on in verse 16. Holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. Offered. The word offered here in the Greek is actually spendo. It's to pour out as a drink offering, like a libation. When, and when it had a, a sacrifice, you would uh, throw a cup of wine on it, and it would disappear in a puff of steam. Paul is a prisoner in Rome when he's writing all this, expecting to be offered up in a, on a pagan altar. 
When he would be killed, it would only be the drink offering poured out upon a far greater offering of their faith. That's what he's cherishing, their faith, as his credential. His achievements, even his pending martyrdom, he placed very low on the scale. Wow. Does your humility among other Christians match this? Boy. He gives another example, and that's Timothy. He continues here in verse 19. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ, Jesus Christ. But ye know the proof of him, that as a son with a father, he hath served with me in the gospel. That's, the whole thing is a commendation of Timothy here. We learn four things about, this, uh, 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 about Timothy from this. Paul had no one else like him. See, in many ways, he was just like Paul. Timothy was concerned for others sincerely. I mean, really. Timothy put Jesus Christ first in his life, and Timothy learned to work with others. He had developed a skill of cooperation. How devoutly to be wished, huh? But this also says a lot about Paul as a father and a teacher. He says, he served with me jointly, like father, like son, in other words. And uh, I encountered a quote by Socrates I couldn't resist including here, just to, by way of contrast. These are, this is written 500 years before Christ. Hear what Socrates says. He's complaining, our youth now love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority, disrespect for older people. Children nowadays are tyrants. They no longer rise when their elders enter the room. They contradict their parents, chatter before company, gobble their food, and tyrannize their teachers. Does that sound familiar? Well, we need to remember ourselves that we are bond slaves. And we should also express, but even though we're bond slaves, we should also express leadership in setting standards and lead by example. That's what he's going to continue here. Uh, verse 23. Him, therefore, I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. Now he's going to go to a third example. We've had himself, he had Timothy, now Epaphroditus. Of all the men that Paul honors in this epistle, Epaphroditus gets the most attention. It's a eulogy that will build to a climax. He contains verse 25. Yet I suppose it necessary to send to you Aphrodite, my brother, and companion in labor, and fellow soldier, but your messenger, uh, uh, but your messenger, and he that ministered to my wants. He uses quite a few verses. He says, "My brother here, brother in Christ," and that was a new ideal in, in Paul's day, a new concept. Fellowship among guilds and soldiers was exclusive. The world was polarized into Greeks and Romans, Jews and Gentiles, aristocrats and plebeians citizens, soldiers, and so forth. There was nothing exclusive or exclusionary about the early Christians. They were a family. <laughs> Don't you wish that described the churches today? But let's move on here. Paul continues, Yet I suppose it necessary to send you to Ephrodite, my brother, and companion in labor. That's another phrase he uses. He was committed, not just involved. I think we've all heard the cliche about the difference in ham and eggs chicken that provided the eggs was involved. The pig that provided the ham was committed. <laughs> so, and, but the, the, and our Jewish friends have the similar thing about lox and bagels, but I, I mean, lox and cream cheese, but anyway. Uh, 
The church in Ephesus was lauded by Jesus in, uh, Raymond, uh, in uh, Revelation chapter 2, where he says, uh, speaking of the church in Ephesus, and hast borne and hast patience, and for my namesake has labored and has not fainted. Same thought there in, in the a critical letter uh, to Ephesus, but Jesus does give them credit for that. Being a companion in labor. And, uh, you know, despite the, in the American churches, uh, despite the financial and numerical success, um, the church in America increasingly become identified with the popular culture. And because of that, they become unable to speak prophetically to it. They become complacent, and they've lost their intellectual and their cultural dynamic, interestingly enough. See, it needs to be reconstituted as a working church in three ways. Intellectually, scout the shelves of any modern-day bookstores, and you'll find a denial of the fundamental doctrines of Christianity. We need clear thinkers winsome writers and persuasive apologists to reverse the trends and publish works of real and lasting value. Secondly, socially, we need to recapture an active role in addressing social concerns. Uh, comp contrast that in the past with the abolition of slavery and child labor laws and things of that nature. And of course, not least, but certainly uh, very important, is evangelism. People need to be one. And they're not one in groups, they're one on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Let's, let's realize that. So he said, he's in, talking about Aphroditus, my brother, companion, labor, and fellow soldier. Now that's quite a label too. Epaphroditus fought side by side with Paul. That's what he's saying there. You know, the Romans pioneered shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder fighting, which led to their successes. The Roman phalanx were a terror to the ancient world. The wall of shields and the tortoise found a uh, formation that they would literally form a, like a, a tank by interlocking their uh, shields and, and uh, they would test their proficiency by <laughs> driving a chariot over it. Anyway, moving on. For he, Epaphrodite, he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that ye had heard that he had been sick. And it was he's concerned because he knew they would be concerned when they heard he was sick. Philippi was about 800 miles from Rome. Traveling distance was at least six weeks, and the message that he was sick would have made a round trip in no less than three months, in effect. For indeed he was sick nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. By the way, this verse is also a refutation of what the faith healers like to insist upon. They're often like Job's comforters that sickness is a result of sin, a lack of faith, or God's chastening. How tragic it is that someone comes to a fellowship and, with an illness and then finds that he's judged for that rather than uh, uh, helped, if you will. And uh, let's move on here. I sent him therefore the more carefully, that when ye see him again ye may rejoice, and that I may be the less sorrowful. So you notice Paul did not teach the healing in the, in the atonement, or that it was a birthright of all Christians. It's interesting that we never read of either Paul or his fellow laborers being miraculously healed. That's something people may overlook. Sickness is often a badge of honor among God's children. Now let's move on to verse 29. Receive him, therefore, uh, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such in reputation because of the work of Christ. He was nigh unto death, 
not regarding his life to supply your lack of service toward me. So he's emphasizing here by Epaphroditus' example, living for others. The high point of Paul's praise for his friend Epaphroditus was his sacrifices of his own interests for others. Now it's interesting, Paul himself was in prison and his, most of his friends had deserted him. And you know, I have to tell you candidly, uh, my wife and I, when we went through our dark, dark times, um, that we went through some pretty dark times. And one of the, the, the disturbing things about that experience was the abandonment of many of our so-called Christian friends. That, uh, that uh, we, we, had, we went through a, a, a bankruptcy. We are on the front pages of the financial uh, edition of the paper. And, and many, many, it, 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 even among our Christian friends, we had leprosy because we, we were, uh, uh, you know, we, we, <laughs> we were in trouble. And then, of course, we had earthquakes, and we lost our son, it goes on. The abandonment of our Christian friends through all that was really a shock. The good news was there were others that we hardly knew that rallied around us and were supportive, and, and my wife and I never forget that. But um, I want to pause here and in insert an interesting uh, example, something we can learn from, and that there's a little tiny bird called the golden plover. And... Um, this little bird, uh, this is, I want to analyze its flight plan. Uh, on this little chart here, we have flight time across the bottom. And we have the weight of the bird up the right side. And uh, its fuel consumption will be going down the left side. Now, this little bird flies every year from Alaska to Hawaii. Now, and there's no, nothing in between, there's no rest stops. That's all open ocean, Alaska to Hawaii. Now, this little creature weighs normally about 130 grams. But uh, what he does in anticipation of that flight, he adds 70 grams to his weight, gains the weight, so he'll have the fuel to make the flight. But when you take the equations of his flight, his fuel consumption and so forth, you discover that even by doing that, he ends up able only to fly for about 72 hours, and the flight to Hawaii takes about 88 hours. And I'm indebted to Werner Gitt's uh, writings here, who did the analysis here, and it's really quite, uh, I was really fascinated with it, because you go through the whole analysis, and he can't make it, and yet he does. How does he do that? Well, it turns out that he actually makes it by flying in formation. By flying in formation, he actually, not only does he make it, he has a reserve of 6.8 grams for headwinds by the time he gets there. And see, what he does, they fly in formation. When they fly in formation, they take turns in being the lead, but the rest are saving about 20%. And that's, that's, that's the way they do it. <laughs> well, very typical experience. I'm up in my study going through all these numbers and checking Vernon Gritz analysis. I'm fascinated by this analysis. And I come down to breakfast, and uh, I'm all excited with the little example. I go through it, and Nan looks over my shoulder, with, see my charts, and she cuts right through it. She says, well, that's just like us, isn't it? What do you mean? <laughs> we can't make it alone either. And I thought, it's so typical. I get all enamored with the details, but she cuts through the real relevance of it. And that's really the whole point of the story of the example is that we can't make it by ourselves either. But I want to, uh, before we finish this 
this uh, exploration uh, focus on a concept that I find shockingly absent from the Christian community and yet demanded by our Lord in Ephesians 6 and other places. There is a word that you don't find in a Christian's vocabulary called the fiduciary. If you are a professional, a doctor, a lawyer, uh, a financial advisor, or if you are a director of a public corporation, uh, you, get, you, you, you come face-to-face with a concept that we need to understand in our Christian walk. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 7, Paul says, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters. Now, many of us, when we start reading this, dismiss it because he's speaking in the idioms of the economy of that day. They had servants and masters. We have employers and employees. And we're not exaggerating the model here. That's exactly what we're talking about. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling. In singleness of your heart, now get that phrase, in singleness of your heart, as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men. You know, there's a very interesting issue here. If you're hired by someone as an hourly employee, you owe them 60 minutes of work for every hour paid. That's if you're a normal employee. You don't own a fiduciary relationship unless you're a manager or a director of the corporation, unless you're a Christian. What, what uh, Paul is calling you here is singleness of your heart. Your focus is on the interests of your employer, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord, not unto men. In other words, if you're employed... Jesus expects you to be working for him. Obedience to masters according to the flesh. In other words, physical and mental, uh, not spiritual or conscious. Well, in singleness of your heart, that means more than just 60 minutes of every hour paid, but also as a fiduciary. I want to focus on that. As unto Christ. See, as unto Christ, no distinction between secular and sacred. Our performance is before him, not our employer. So I want to get into some vocabulary issues here. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, as a servant, it required that they be faithful. What does that mean? What does faithful mean in the, in the legal sense? Firmly adhering to duty, of true fidelity, loyal, true to allegiance, constant in the performance of duties or services, true to one's word, honest, loyal. That word loyal echoes right through there. There's another word I want to deal with here before we tie this chapter off, and that's the, the term fiduciary. What does that mean? It's the relation existing when one person justifiably reposes confidence, faith, or reliance in another whose aid, advice, or protection is sought in some matter. The relation existing when good conscience requires one to act at all times for the sole benefit and interests of another with loyalty to those interests. The relation by law existing between certain classes of persons as confidential advisors uh, and the one advised or executors or administrators or legatees or heirs, corporate directors, officers, and so forth are examples of that. See, what we've lost in our culture and is the sanctity of a commitment. Uh, 
one of my, I spent 30 years in the corporate boardroom. I served on 12 public boards. I was chairman and CEO of, of uh, six different public companies. That 30-year career in the secular boardrooms involved a higher ethic than I have experienced since leaving that world to, in, to uh, uh, be active in what I'll call professional Christianity. And I'm, the, the going from the secular boardroom was for me like going from a convent to a brothel. The, the, the lack of ethics within the so-called professional Christian community is a shock I still haven't gotten over. We've lost the sanctity of a commitment in business. We've lost the sanctity of commitment in marriages. The divorce rate within the body of Christ is no better, maybe worse, than it is in the secular world. Something's wrong here. The sanctity of a commitment. That, I believe, is society's desperate need. Diligence only when the boss is looking? Slacking off when the boss is away is a form of dishonesty. A Christian can perform any good work as a ministry to Christ from the heart. Being a witness, in contrast to witnessing. You know, I often talk uh, 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 to a group, uh, I suggest that uh, many of us in this group are the greatest undercover Christians the world's ever seen. Our family, our neighbors never suspect we're sold out to Christ. If we were on trial... For being a Christian, there's not enough evidence to convict us. I hope I'm being facetious and flippant here. Well, gee, Chuck, what if the master is overbearing, abusive, and unreasonable? <laughs> Come on here. He says, as unto the Lord, your wages are only temporal. Our real rewards are from him. And any time you think you're going through an ordeal, remember what Christ went through on your behalf. Anytime you're hesitant to forgive, realize what Christ has forgiven you. And we could go on and on there. What are the requirements of a fiduciary? Justice Cardoso wrote a famous element of this I want to uh, indulge here. Many forms of conduct permissible in a workaday world for those acting at arm's length are forbidden to those bound by fiduciary ties. A trustee is held to something stricter than the morals of the marketplace. Not honesty alone, but the punctilio of an honor most sensitive is then the standard of behavior. And to this there has developed a tradition that is unbending and inveterate. We're talking about the secular world here, by the way. Uncompromising rigidity has been the attitude of the courts of equity when petitioned to undermine the rule of undivided loyalty by the disintegrating erosion of particular exceptions. Only thus has the level of conduct for fiduciaries been kept at a level higher than that trodden by the crowd. Justice Cardozo. Another one I want to, just one more if you'll indulge me here. Justice Sheenteg wrote in the same thing. A director of a corporation is in the position of a fiduciary. He will not be permitted improperly to profit at the expense of his, corpora his corporation. Undivided loyalty will ever be insisted upon. Personal gain will be denied to a director when it uh, comes because he has taken a position adverse or in conflict with the best interests of his corporation. The fiduciary relationship imposes a duty to act in accordance with the highest standards which a man of finest sense of honor might impose upon himself. And while there is a lofty moral ideal implicit in this rule, it actually accomplishes a practical benefit purpose. It recognizes the frailty of human nature. It realizes that where a man's immediate fortunes are concerned, he may sometimes be subject to a blindness, often intuitive and compulsive. 
This rule is designed, on the one hand, to prevent clouded conception of fidelity and a moral indifference that blurs the vision, and on the other hand, to stimulate the most luminous critical sense and the finest exercise of judgment, uncontaminated by the dross of prejudice, of divided allegiance, or of self-interest. Well, I have to share this other little story with you, if I may. An old missionary was returning from many years of sacrificial service in Africa. And he happened to be on the same ship that President Theodore Roosevelt was returning from a big game hunt in Africa. And when the ship docked, there were great crowds and the press and so forth that greeted the president. The old missionary and his wife walked off unnoticed and made their way to a cheap hotel. Doesn't seem right. We gave our lives in Africa to win souls to Christ, and when we arrive home, there's nobody here to meet us. The president shoots some animals and receives a royal welcome. The missionary complained. His wife said, that's because we aren't home yet. I love that. I love that. Okay, well, in the next session, we're going to explore chapter 3 in the epistle to the Philippians. And this is probably the most beloved chapter of Paul's letter. It lays out some of the most cardinal doctrines of the Christian life, but it also unveils, in stirring language, Paul's own key personal goal. And that's to know and to serve the Lord Jesus. His and your key challenge may surprise you. His key challenge is for you and me to be joyful. So from this foundation, he's going to go into the chapter which many regard as the most beloved chapter of the entire letter. So study it carefully and... We'll see you in the next session. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Messler, teaching through the book of Philippians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.